Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We thank you, Lord, for your blessings that abound. And we pray now that we would still our hearts from the cares of this world and uh, allow your Holy Spirit to minister your truth to us this morning. And Lord, they truly are wonderful words of life. And we, we praise you and thank you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother, for reading that. I gave him the wrong wrong thing there. I had my head in Chronicles this morning and, and, and it just blurted out the Chronicles there. But we're in 2 Kings 22, but we'll be going to Chronicles anyway. So, But the, this, this morning, we're going to be... Un, just like people to... No, and the title of the message is Understanding God's View of Sin. And uh, if we look around us in the world today, what would we say about the condition of world affairs? Well, honestly, what would we say? What would we say about the condition of the people in the world? Well, the right answer, the only answer is it's all in a mess. Amen? It's all in a mess. There's no real direction. There's no real hope. People are looking for some sort of revival, but very few people are thinking about judgment. See, many believers themselves, they don't think about judgment. They're there, they're, they think about revival as well. And it seems, though, that, that people today have changed revival as being very different to what the Word of God says about revival. Do you know that there has been... Uh, um, a change to nearly every commandment of God. You know, we, we've been changing the definition of revival to the way we want it to be. We have changed God into our own image. We, the way many worship today, the way youth work, the, the way family life is being set up has been changed to the way people want it. And as I said, there's been a change to nearly every commandment of God to fit in with the way... People want to live. You know, God's Ten Commandments continually being broken so people can feel right about themselves. You, you, you look at the command not to have any other gods before God. Yet people place sport ahead of God. They place work ahead of God. People place leisure ahead of God. Now, people even pl place their spouses and children way above God on their list of priorities for their life. Listen, we have a saying in our house, and I don't know if anyone else has ever come up with it, but if God is in first place, everything fits into place. That's how we've structured our home. You look at the, you look at the Sabbath. And you're not, look, I know the Sabbath was a covenant between God and Israel alone. But the principle of gathering together in fellowship to worship God, to hear from God through the preaching of his word. Take time out to, to meditate and, and to focus on him. Do you know, that is so important for our spiritual and physical well-being, yet it's become how quick people can get away in and out of church on a Sunday. Now, I praise God this church isn't like that. I'm very thankful for that. Now, we're at the stage of this church where oh, are they ever going to go home? <laughs> but that's how church is becoming. It's about how we, people can please themselves and do their own thing. Listen, you look at, the, 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 at marriage, you look at the command not to commit adultery 
yet adultery, adultery is rife physically and it is rife mentally as well. It's not just a physical act, brothers and sisters. Jesus was very clear. He said, we even think about another outside of marriage as adultery. Look at covetousness, theft, honouring fathers and mothers. Listen, I'm saying that. Mums and dads, let me tell you something. Give them something to honour. You've got to give your children something to honour. You've got to show them how important God is to the running of your family, the supply of your needs and your worship. Give them something to honour. Not even an amen. Look at that. But as long as everyone does what is right in their own eyes and it isn't any different to anyone else, we assume as long as God does not judge us, then all is fine. But let me tell you something that's not. Now, is there a real heart cry today in our lives for revival? And I'm talking biblical revival. I'm not just talking about thousands of people coming to the Lord. I'm talking about the need for a, a deep, real, intimate encounter with God himself. See, that's what our country needs. That's what our churches need. That's what our families need. Above all else, we need to get God back in his rightful position in every level, every area of our lives. And we need to be involved with him. Now, at this moment, God may be speaking to your heart. Your heart might be crying out to, to, to get the Christian life in order. To get rid of not what, what's not right with God. Get the priorities in the right order. Let God first occupy our lives. We give him the attention to his ways. You know, if we've got concerns, if there are difficulties arising, if there are dangers we may be facing, then we need to wrap ourselves up in the ways of God. But understand something. That our personal involvement with God doesn't come simply because we listen to a message. Or that we pray or that we read the word of God. It comes from a, a deep personal acknowledgement that God has spoken to you and to me. And this means that when we hear the word of God... It right away starts a work in us to understand and to respond to what he is saying. And when we come face to face with God and he says something through his word, we immediately begin to find we have to react in a way that if this is what God has said, then this is what I must do. The first point is blessing or curse. Now, in 2 Kings 22 and 23, we, we have the story of Josiah. Now, he was only eight years old when he came to the throne. Now, he was the son of Ammon. He was the grandson of Manasseh. Now, Manasseh, he was 12 years old when he came to the throne. So if you go to 2 Kings 21 and verse 3, I'm going to read verses 3 
chapter 7 and then verse 16, if you want to follow. This is about Manasseh. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire and observed times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all my tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. And down to verse 16. Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other beside his sin, wherewith he made Judah to sin in doing that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. Do you know, Manasseh, he reigned for 55 years and he walked a path, listen to this, look at this, of witchcraft, a path of idolatry. He built altars to the stars in heaven. He sacrificed his own son and other children in fires in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He took the, the nation of Judah into an even deeper depravity than the nations that were in that land, in the land of Canaan, when Joshua went in there. Now in 2 Chronicles, here we go, we've got the right one now, amen. 2 Chronicles 33. In verses 10 to 17, I'm not going to read these, but we're going to look at just a couple of them. The Lord speaks to Manasseh. But he nor the people listened to the Lord. And the Lord brought the Assyrian army against them and they captured Manasseh and took him to Babylon in chains. That's in verse 11 there. He brought upon him the captains of the host of the kings of Assyria which took Manasseh among the thorns, bound him with feathers and carried him to Babylon. And look at verse 12. And when he, that's Manasseh, when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. You see, the Lord spoke to Manasseh. But he nor the people listened to the Lord. So he brings that Assyrian army against him. And here's Manasseh carried off in chains to Babylon. Now look at verse 12. And when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him and was entreated unto him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew the Lord, he was God. You, you see, we, we see that God restored Manasseh after he humbled himself before the Lord. 
Manasseh had repented of his idolatry. He had destroyed the idols he set up. And he repaired, verse 16, if you look at verse 16, look what he does. He repaired the altar of the Lord. And we see the Lord. Gives Manasseh back his kingdom. And he commands the, the people to do the same. Now it's during the years of this reform at the end of Manasseh's life that Josiah, his grandson, was born. Now Josiah, he would have been around about four to maybe six years old as all this reform is going on. And what an impact this must have been on this young boy. To hear his grandfather listening, listening to him talk about the Lord, seeing his grandfather set things right with God. What an impact that must have had on this young boy. Then at age six, in 2 Chronicles 33, 21, we see, And Ammon was twenty and two years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem, but he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh, his father. For Ammon sacrificed under all the carved images which Manasseh, his father, had made and served them and humbled not himself before the Lord as Manasseh, his father, had humbled himself. But Ammon trespassed more and more. You see, before his own son Ammon, Manasseh had lived a terrible life. A terrible life idolatry, witchcraft, human sacrifices. But he came to his senses. When the Lord afflicted him, he turned his life around. But he'd already shown a terrible witness to his family. Amen. That's what he'd already done. And Ammon didn't listen to him in the end. It says he, he trespassed more and more. He didn't listen to the call of his father to follow the Lord. And that the opposite was true. He walked in pride. He did what his father had done and that multiplied his sin and his guilt. He trespassed more and more. And verse, look at verse 24. And it says, And his servants conspired against him and slew him in his own house. So here's some servants who know that this guy, hang on a minute, Manasseh got it right at the end. We were serving the Lord. Now his son's going the wrong way. What can we do? Let's kill him. And we read that and we think, oh, that might sound pretty good. These guys want to get right with the Lord. But look at verse 25. But the people of the land slew all them that had conspired against King Ammon and the people of the land made Josiah his king instead. Here's the people of the land. We go, well, what's going on here? The servants have got rid of the king. You think the people of the land would be happy. But no, the people of the land then killed those servants. Now, what a, what a difference Josiah must have seen between his grandfather and his father. And the palace servants, they saw that difference. They killed him and then they were killed by the people. The people who were behind Josiah, who wanted a king to rule with them. And the difference in those verses is they wanted a king to rule with order, not anarchy and rebellion. That's why the first lot were killed. You know, Bob Jones Sr. said it is never right to do wrong in order to do right. And that's such a true saying. And Josiah, 
Second Chronicles 34.1 was eight years old when he began to reign and he reigned in Jerusalem one and thirty years and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father and declined neither to the right hand nor to the left. Eight years of age on the throne. And in verse 3, look at him, he's now 16. For in the eighth year of his reign, so he's eight when he got there, eight years later, he's now 16. While he was yet young, he began to seek after the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he's now 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem from the high places and the groves and the carved images and the molten images. You see, he breaks down all the, the altars of Balaam. He cuts up the groves and, and the idols. He, he kills the priests and then he burns their bones upon their own false altars. And Josiah goes through the land and he does the same thing. He destroys all that was an abomination to the one true God. Now in verse 8 of, of 2 Chronicles 34, now in the 18th year, now he's 26 years of age, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Masiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Johaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. See, Joah's, look, look at when we read this, the reason I'm explaining all this is the point that he was blessed to be surrounded with people who wanted to do right by God. That's what he was blessed with. They were loyal to him. And because of that, they had a great influence in his life. Now, Shaphan was one of these men, and we read about him in our text for today, back in Kings. Jeremiah, in fact, Jeremiah 36, 10 and 19, tell us. Then read Baruch in the book of the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Jeremiah, the son of Shaphan, the scribe in the higher court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the ears of all the people. Oh, I've lost my verse. Then said to the princes, verse 19, unto Barak, go hide thee in Jeremiah and let no man know where you be. In verse 6 there tells us, therefore go and read in the roll which thou hast written from thy mouth the words of the Lord in the ears of the people. Listen, Jeremiah tells us that Saphan's son, another Jeremiah that starts with G, protected him as he was preaching the gospel. He, set to, he sought to protect, in verse 6 there, the rolls, the word of God. And another one of Shaphan's son in Jeremiah 26, 24, protected Jeremiah from those who wanted to kill him. Then the Zephaniah, he prophesied early in the part of Josiah's reign and he warned of God's judgment upon the people who followed Baal and worshipped astrology. In Zephaniah 1.1, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, I will utterly consume all things from off the land, saith the Lord. See, these are all people who wanted to do right in the sight of the Lord and in a world around them that was completely gone berserk with immorality and the worship of false gods. What a, what a testimony it is. What an impact 
they would have had on the godliness of this young king's life. Listen, the influence of other people on our lives is undeniable if we are going to walk with the Lord in his ways. And if we are, then we need to walk with those who follow the Lord. Amen? That's what we need to do. It means all the difference to whether we follow him or not, or whether we follow him or walk away from him. Mums and dads, grandparents, this is so important for your children. It's so important for anyone who's a believer. When we're in church and young people are here, we need to walk and talk the ways of the Lord. You know, 1 Corinthians 15.33, very simple little verse. Be not deceived, evil communications corrupt good manners. Now, who are we mingling with? Do they help us to walk in God's ways? Or are they leading us astray to, to follow the world's ways, the world's idols? That's the intro. We come to our text. Amen. 2 Kings 22. In verse 2 it says, And he did that, this is Josiah, which was right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in all the way of David his father, and turned not aside to the right hand or to the left, and it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the scribe, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may sum the silver which is brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the door have gathered of the people, and let them deliver it to the hand of the doers of the work that have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the doers of the work which is in the house of the Lord to repair the breaches of the house. Look at that little passage. Can I ask something? Are you a doer of the work? There's a good message for someone who'd like the right one. Are we doers of the work of the Lord? Are we willing to, to give and to serve? Not for anything, but for the simple fact he is our God and Saviour. You see, God's house here, it's become a bit run down. It's in need of some repairs. And as the priests are cleaning the temple, they find the scriptures. Look at verse 8. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. Think about this for a moment. The temple is a mess in disrepair. They're cleaning up. The doers of the work are there. The builders, the masons, the, the priests, the scribes. And the, they come across a book. They'll probably take the dust off it a little bit. Tidy it, straighten it up a little bit. And look what they realize, what they found. I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Not a book of law. A book of the law in the house of the Lord. Do you know that many churches today don't even have the book of the law of the Lord in their service? Amen. They substitute it for, for a message. I ought to say it so I don't get sued. Amen. <laughs> they substitute it for, for scripture that's got verses missing. If they open a Bible at all. And here they are, they, they, they dust it off. Brothers and sisters, is there any dust on our Bibles this morning? Did we have to dust this off before we come to church? 
maybe sat there all week without opening it. I found the book of the law of the Lord in the house of the, God, of the Lord. And verse 10 says, And Shapham the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest hath delivered me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And look at the response of Josiah. Verse 11, And it came to pass when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he rent his clothes. These Josiah and these men, it's like they've discovered something. But this isn't the discovery of something that's new. This is not some new treasure they've found. It's a recovery of something that was lost and has now been found and it's been joyfully found. Are you joyful when the word of God is preached to you on a Sunday morning, brothers and sisters? Are you joyful when you pick it up and God speaks to you and says, hey, Dennis, there's a sin I want you to deal with in your life? Are you joyful? And when Josiah accepted it, he regarded it from that moment as the authority over his life. You know what he did? He rent his clothes. See, this is just not any book. This is the book of the law of the Lord. This is God's words, God's commands. And all of a sudden, this king realizes for the first time what the standard had been all along, and he realized that God would not be mocked. You know, when, when, when you sow something, you reap what it is. But you always reap more than what you put in. And when you sow, you always reap later than you sow. And God's covenant is being read out. He's covenant with his people. Saying what God would do if the people followed and practiced what he commanded. Now in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 23, the covenant listed all that God asked them to do. And that's a great covenant. The first part, oh man, it's, it's super positive. But the second part starts with in Deuteronomy 28, 15. But, isn't that a great word? But it shall come to pass if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all his commandments and statutes which I command thee this day that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. I wonder whose hearts now are saying to them, this is Old Testament stuff. I'm under grace. Well, Jesus says to me in John 14, 15, ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. And you turn that verses around, they're two verses really easy, John 14, 15 and John 15, 14. If you love me, keep my commandments. Back in our text, 2 Kings 22, 12. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, and Ahiakim the son of Shaphan, and Abbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Azahiah the servant of the king, saying, Go ye, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that is found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not hearkened unto the words of this book, to do according unto all which is written concerning us. You know, as the Spirit of God fell upon Josiah 
and pierced his heart, he trembled and it caused him to act as a king should act. He called for his people to repent. And the Lord's message is very clear. His wrath had already been aroused. Verse 16 and 17. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place and upon the inhabitants thereof, even all the words of the book which the king of Judah hath read, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense unto other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath shall be kindled against this place and shall be not be quenched. You see, Josiah, he took seriously what God was saying. He took seriously what God says God would act on. He knew God. God's got no favourites. No one's better here than anyone else in the sight of God. He's got no favourites. Josiah could see that the, the people, the nation, they had come to an edge of a cliff and their toes were just over the edge of it. They were ready to fall. Destruction was a step away. And they had one problem, and it was only one problem. They put the word of God where they would take no more notice of it. That's the world we live in today. The word of God has not taken notice of. A hundred years ago, you might even have heard a politician read some scripture in Parliament. Not today. They don't want it there. They don't want it in our lives. Churches years ago were a church like this. But you look at the mainstream church today and it's no different to any other meeting that's going on. Run as a corporate business with meetings structured so that there's nothing but profit and loss. They forgot that we, we have a personal saviour. We have personal encounters with God. We are children of God and we're his family. Amen. All the time God's word's being ignored, God's judgment is processing along. That's the day we live in. You know, I don't like it when people say, oh, it's Old Testament stuff. It's as irrelevant today as any of the word of God is. You see, they had set aside the standards that they were commanded to live by and they'd lost any standard for godly behaviour. Any standard at all. And that's us today. That's the world today. No longer is it Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is what? Your reasonable service. That's the least we should do. See, when God's people begin to sit down and when God's people begin to discuss what they think is acceptable to God, the standards they were commanded to live by, when they do that, when they, it doesn't matter what they think is acceptable to God, it's what God says that matters. People are on the brink of a fall when they think they can sit around and discuss what they think about this. 
Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes and they're heading for disaster. And this godly king who had surrounded himself with godly people discerned it. He understood what was going to happen if things did not change. So what does he do? He does what we all should do once the word of God speaks to us. He adjusts his life to God. And it would be God's standards from now on. And he calls all the spiritual leaders together. He says, gather the people and we're going to repent as a body. And he wept and he cried. And look look what happened in verse 18. God saw his heart. And he says, but to the king of Judah, which sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, as touching the words which thou hast heard, because thy heart was tender... And thou hast humbled thyself before the Lord when thou heardest what I spake against this place and against the inhabitants thereof, that they should become a desolation and a curse and has rent thy clothes and wept before me, I also have heard thee, saith the Lord. And look what the Lord does. Behold, therefore, I will gather thee unto thy fathers and they shall be gathered into thy grave in peace. And thy eyes shall not see the evil which will I bring upon this place and they brought the king word again. What, what a beautiful description that is. Eh? What a great God. And to me, it was such a type of what's going to happen to the church. We're going to be raptured out. We're not going to see one day of the evil of the tribulation. Amen. Not one. Not one. The thing is, what happens when, when you and I, we come up against the word of God? And we see something. Do, do, do we weep? Do we rent our clothes and, at, at the standard we're living? Or has God's word just been gathering dust on a shelf and just picked up on Sundays? You may be saying, well, listen, I read my Bible every day. Well, let me tell you, let me ask you something. Has it brought you into the real presence of God? Because one cannot come into the presence of God and stay the same. That's impossible. Secondly, a fear of God brings a fear of sin. We've got to get rid of that thing. (laughs) When a believer has no fear of God, guess what? They have no fear of sin. It's very easy. It's not rocket science or deep high theology. But a high view of God will bring a very high view of what sin can do to a person's life. And it's amazing, isn't it, how many can, can sin grievously against the Word of God. Praise God, we're under grace today. And if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you know, in the Old Testament, they would have put to death many for the things that people do today. Yet in the New Testament, do you know what God says? God says to us, It's more serious in the New Testament era to commit sin than it was in the old. I know what you're thinking. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We're under grace. But if you read Hebrews 10, the New Testament blood and bulls of of goats couldn't atone for sin. Only the blood of Christ can atone for sin. See, grace is greater than the law, amen. So I'll put it to you, to sin under grace is a greater commitment of sin than to sin under the law. 
And it's incredible how many believe as long as it doesn't feel bad, it isn't bad. As long as people feel okay about it, it's okay. As long as God hasn't dealt immediately with sin, it's okay to continue in sin. You see, many do not see the hand of God at work on the people of God. you know why? Because the people of God have lost the fear of God. And because they've lost the fear of God, they've lost the fear of sin. And many in church don't like to be confronted with messages like this. They just don't like it. Messages that challenge and condemn sin. The sin of adultery. The sin of drunkenness. The sin of revelry. The sin of sodomy. The sin of blasphemy. Oh, the list goes on and on. The sin of gossip. The sin of backbiting. God deals severely with these because, brothers and sisters, what sort of message does that give to the world when God's people live like that? Well, you know what it tells the world? It tells the world, hey, there's, there, there, there's no fear of God and there's no fear of sin. And many think, oh, no, we're, we're, we're getting away with it. Or they've already gotten away with it. Yet what do we see Christian children doing? Marrying into godless families. What do we see Christian children doing? Being disobedient to their parents. What do we see families split asunder? Children and grandchildren hurting and suffering Everything falling apart. And they say, yes, I've gotten away with sin. God's not too concerned with sin anymore. I'm under grace. God hasn't judged me. Don't they understand? He just did. He has. And they think it's fine and it's okay. And it's not. Because we have a holy and righteous God. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Because listen, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. They'll hear a message like this and say, we're not going back there again. Let's turn this off the internet. We don't want this sort of stuff. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves what? Teachers having itching ears. Let's just smooth it out a bit, Pastor. Let's just ice the cake. I want to practice adultery. I want to practice lasciviousness. I want to practice sodomy and be right with you. No, you can't. No, you can't. You see, the... the the time to, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned under fables. That's what the world's got today. Fables. Nothing. You know, if we could do one thing, wouldn't it be great just to rip the facade off this world and see the devil roaring around just damning souls to hell? Because that's the reality of the world we live in. And the time is now for God's people to come back to God's word and let him tell us what the standard is. Amen? Amen? Thirdly, returning to God. 
Do you know that the word revive means to give life to? To return the life to, I should say. Lost people can't be revived. You know why? Because they're dead in trespasses and sin. A person has to be saved before they can be revived. Because it means to return life to. Revival is what God does to his children. See, when the life of God is put away by the people of God, then then God's people will be content to live without the real presence of God in their life. See, they live week after week, year after year, without any evidence of the power or the presence of God. When it's like that, then we need to be revived. And to be revived, we need the life of God to come back to us. I'm not talking about salvation. We've got that. I mean the, the standard of God for our lives. Turn to Malachi 3.1 and we'll finish off here. Or well, we might. I won't promise anything. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old as in, and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers, against the false swearers, and those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, I was reading this a while back. It was discovered a pastor had rented motel rooms for a particular woman who was not his wife. And nobody had known. That's not true. God was there when he signed the check. When he paid for that room. And God will deal with him and God will come as a witness against him and that should cause people to tremble. See, the things that we try and hide from the eyes of others are not secrets withheld from the eyes of God. And he will show up as a witness against us. And if we lose the fear of God, there is nothing to keep us on the right track. You see, in many people, they just don't believe that God sees them. They do not believe God knows the condition of their hearts. And they think if he, he does see and he doesn't stop them, then everything's all right. Listen, God sees you and me and God may not stop us right away. And let me tell you something, it's not all right. If the word of God says it's sin, then sin it is. Malachi 3, 6, For I am the Lord and change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, 
wherein shall we return? See, when, when we come under God's word, when we hear a message that calls for us to return to the Lord, God's people consistently say, well, hey, anyone, wherein do I need to return? What's wrong with me? I'm a Christian. I've been born again. I've been baptized. I've joined the church. I have a ministry in the church. I'm going to go to heaven sooner or later. What do you mean? What's wrong with me? Why should I return to God? Do you know if there's one area in God's people's lives it's that they're confused, it's the area of repentance. Now, repentance, we know, means to change the mind that leads to action. You know, you, you, can, you can be very sorrowful for your sin, but it's not just about feeling sorry for your sin. It's a deep, heartfelt recognition that one has sinned against a holy, righteous God and we want to make ourselves right with him. And we need to confess that sin, allow him to forgive us and cleanse us, and then we need to get our act together and walk worthy of the Lord. Amen? We need to come to a spiritual knowledge of his will for us, an understanding of what the cross meant, an understanding that it wasn't any human blood that was shed for us. It was the blood of God himself that has washed away the sin of our lives. It is his blood that has made us white as snow and to sin against that is to trample underfoot the blood of Christ. And if we're talking seriously about repentance, you know what? People would pray, God, if there's any lost people here today, save them. God, I know that person in the back row. They need to change their lives. Change their lives for them, God. I want to pray that they would repent. And all the while, God's shouting out to his own children, You repent! Don't worry about them. I'm talking to you. Me? Why do I need to repent? See, it's not our brothers or sisters in Christ who needs to repent. God's saying, listen, my children, repent. We are the ones who move away from God. We are the ones who have moved away from his standards. See, we're the ones who are supposed to give a testimony to the standards of God, to what he has done for us, to the living word of God. And the, God's children are moving away from that. And God's saying, hey, it's not lost people who need to repent. It's not the brothers and sisters, it's my children. We're the ones who have put his standards aside and moved away from our precious Lord and Saviour. And you know, in compassion and, and great concern, God comes to Malachi and he tells him, he says, tell my people the God of they who have been seeking is going to come very suddenly to his temple. And for us today, 
in the dispensation of grace. God sent the word to become flesh, to walk this earth sinless, to be bruised and stripped and beaten and crucified, to be buried so that we could be forgiven and rise again. And I want to tell you something today. When we look at the state of the world today, I'm going to tell you, the Lord is going to come suddenly. Matthew 22, 42. Watch therefore, for you know not what hour that your Lord doth cometh. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. Luke 12, 40. Be ye therefore ready also, for the Son of Man cometh in an hour when you think not. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. Do you know that when he comes, there'll be no preacher doing the speaking. He's the one who'll be speaking. And when he is through speaking, we'll know he sees what we have done for him. There's Romans 14.10, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou sort it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. You know, today is the day to deal with sin. Today is the day to get our lives right with God. In our lives as Christians, we have boundaries we're not supposed to go outside of. It's a bit like the salesman who's about to clinch a deal. He's got a big sale there and they've got the pen in their hand. And he starts to worry the people. Oh, look, the, the, the pen's shaking. They're going to pull out. I know what I'll do. I'll exaggerate this a little bit. I'll fudge this little bit here and I'll secure the sale. See, if he just gives into the former lust to be dishonest, everything will be right. And the world says, go for it. God's obedient child says no to it. The word of God teaches that that sort of thing is sin. Now, the world doesn't understand that sort of choice. But that's the choice an obedient believer makes to the glory of God. There's a man named Abraham Berenger. He, 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 he was a, a young lad. He was going from England to America on a boat. In fact, it was the same boat John Wesley was on when he first went to America. And Abraham Berenger's parents died during the voyage. And he was an orphan at sea. And a family took him in and as he became a young man, they, they had taught him the word of God. And as he became a young man, he surrendered to God's call to, 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 preach, the God, to preach God's word, to preach his truth. He felt a burden to preach the gospel to the slave people on St. Thomas Island. He was burdened to bring them the word of God. He wanted them to know the truth. You see, but on St. Thomas Island, the law was that only slaves can teach slaves. And they wouldn't let him teach. So Abraham Beringer sold himself into slavery to be able to bring God's word to these people. The world does not understand that. 
They don't understand that sort of commitment, that sort of choice. They see it as crazy and demented. But the believer sees it as dedication to God. To the believer, you see, God's word is the only way. It is the only truth. It is the only life. God's word is the standard by which we live. And, and imagine what these people would have said to Abraham Barringer. Hey, listen, don't listen to what the government's got there say. That, that's their laws. Don't worry about it. Listen, if you're going to say, have you seen the conditions of those slaves? They're sick. They're dying. What about your condition? How are you going to look in a few years' time? What if you change your mind? It's too late then. Listen, God won't mind if you don't do what he's asking you to do. How does someone do something like Abraham Berenger? He does it through God's enabling grace. Now, not everyone is called by God to do something like that, but God has called all believers to be doers of the word and not hearers only. James 1.21, we're just at the end. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls but be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own self. And the question I had to ask and I asked myself was when did the word of God become a force in my life that led me to obey it? And I'd like to ask you the same question. How are we doing in seeking God in his word? Can we put it on a scale? Not at all or on a regular basis? How are we doing in obeying what God reveals to us? Not at all or on a regular basis? How are we doing in growing in a knowledge of his word? Not at all or on a regular basis? Growing in God's grace. When was it? Now we serve a great and mighty God and he's called us to a real relationship with himself. And we need to understand that uh, God does have a view of sin. And he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place to pay that penalty. Now we can't be saved by works. But I tell you what, true saving faith will always produce a work. Amen? Amen. 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 Heavenly Father, we come before you today thanking you, Lord, that you've written down for us your will. You have written down the testimony of your heart in your word. Now may we be faithful to, to study it and to submit ourselves to your word as the authority of our lives, to guide our life, to guide our marriages, to guide our families. And we pray for your enabling grace to keep your word with a heart of obedience 
now that we've come under the truth. Lord, we thank you for the great and mighty God you, you are. And we thank you our sin debt has been paid. Help us, Lord, to live a life before this lost and dying world that is worthy of your name. These things we pray in the precious name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.